following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Have any of you ever met an inventor? Someone who's created something that does some good for the world? My wife's grandfather is an inventor, and I've enjoyed speaking to him about several of his inventions which are used in factories and about which I know very little, but he's always very excited to tell me about it, and I've enjoyed talking to him about these things. Well, imagine that you meet an inventor this week and that he actually shows you his invention. You see what it looks like. You can even tell how heavy it is or how large it is. But what's the first question that you would ask him? Boys and girls, what would you ask an inventor about his invention? Well, I know what I would ask him. It's the same thing I asked Mrs. Groff's grandfather when I found out he was an inventor. I said, what does the thing do? What is its purpose? What is it for? Why did you make this? I might be interested in what it looks like, what kinds of sounds it makes when it's operating, how big or small it is, what color it is, other properties of it. Those things might be interesting to me. They might even be very important for the use. But the single most important thing about any invention, about anything in this world, really, is its purpose. Its purpose, what it's for, what it does why it exists. Again, what is this thing supposed to do? And does it fulfill its purpose? Well, having completed his description of, uh, of what his disciples are supposed to be in the Beatitudes, namely poor in spirit, pure in heart, gentle peacemakers who will certainly suffer persecution in this world, now Jesus Christ moves into the second point of the Sermon on the Mount. He's told us what he intends for his followers to be and what it looks like for them to flourish. And now he proceeds to tell us what this community of disciples is for, what they are for. Put yourself in their position this evening as you come together for worship. After hearing the Beatitudes and especially uh, after hearing about the certainty of persecution of this band of followers where he says, you shall be persecuted. What would you want to ask Jesus? Well, perhaps, like you would ask the inventor if you met a man with an invention, you'd say, what in the world are you making this for? What are we here for? Or better yet, how are we supposed to function in the world? What is it that you're creating, Lord? And Christ gives a stunning answer in verses 13 through 16. He uses four metaphors or word pictures. He talks about salt and then light. He talks about a city on a hill and a household lamp, a candle on a lampstand. And so tonight we'll look at the first of these four metaphors. And we'll consider the other three, Lord willing, in a few weeks when I return to the pulpit after a much-needed break. But don't miss the point. Just as certainly as Jesus tells the disciples... You shall suffer persecution for my sake. 
you shall suffer persecution. So too, he dovetails into his second point and says, you, you all and you alone are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. This declaration of Christ to his disciples as his apostles, those who would be the, uh, the initial elders and preachers of his church, and then through them to you as his people. That's what Christ is doing. He's saying, you are the salt of the earth and light of the world. That's using these sword pictures, telling you how you function in the world. This evening, I wish to show you from this text that Christ's followers live as true believers for the good of the world in the midst of the world. Christ's followers live as true believers for the good of the world. That's their function in the midst of the world. That's their setting. The Christian life, it's rarely celebrated in our culture and in our, even in our extended families. In fact, it's rare today for a Christian to be promoted through the ranks of high society at all. When was the last time we've had a truly and sincerely Christian president who wasn't mocked and scorned every day of his presidency? Indeed, as we have considered these last two weeks, the Christian life is marked with suffering and persecution, rejection by the world. But Christ declares that his followers, and particularly his disciples, are the salt of the earth, those who live as true believers for the good of the world, even in the midst of the world. We'll consider this glorious description that Christ gives us of his disciples under three headings. First, we'll look at Christian influence for the good of the world. Then we'll look at Christian influence applied to the world. And third, Christian influence maintained in the world. So very first, we need to define our terms. What does Christ mean when he says that you are salt? What is Christian influence? It is Christian influence for the good of the world. Consider the nature of salt and the influence of salt first. By employing this image of salt, there's a lot of discussion among commentators about what exactly Christ is referring to. But everybody's agreed about this one thing. Christ references a material, a commodity, a thing that every single person would be familiar with, that everybody uses even on a daily basis. Did you use salt today? I, if you ate anything, I'm sure you did, whether you know it or not, whether it was intentional or not. This is an everyday necessity, not just in our culture or in first century Palestine, but even from, uh, in every human culture. The ancient Roman uh, historian Pliny the Elder said this about salt, life cannot be lived humanely without salt. And so this is something that's fairly well established in our experience. But the word speaks of salt in its many uses as well. And we'll talk about a few of those from Scripture. But when we're thinking about the nature of salt and why it's so significant that Christ uses it, the one word that should come to mind for each of us and that I'm seeking to impress upon you this evening is the word difference. Salt is essentially different than anything to which it is applied. And what influence does this essentially different material or mineral have upon that which it is applied? 
While our everyday use of salt for many thousands of years is as a preservative. You rub salt into meat, particularly before the days of the refrigerator and the freezer, which were not all that long ago, but you rub salt into meat in order to preserve it so it doesn't go rotten. So all the contaminants in the world around us, in the air and in the ground and everywhere else, even on our fingers that hit the meat, that they don't ruin it. The salt, uh, by its unique properties, actually protects the meat and preserves it from rot. I think that's the most important use of salt that we're going to look at tonight. But I do want to tell you about a few others. I said to Mrs. Groff the other night, I said, you know, I've been meditating on a very serious verse. And she said, which one? I said, it's drawn from the book of Job. She said, I love the book of Job. I said, me too. I said, it's drawn from Job chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. And she said, well, what, what are those verses? And I said, they're very important, honey, especially for you. And she said, what are they? I said, can something tasteless be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the white of an egg? My soul refuses to touch them. They are like loathsome food to me. And then she chuckled. And truly, salt does give a savor to food. It's what leads Paul in, in his letter to the church in Colossae, to the Colossians, to say, let your speech be seasoned with salt. It's a seasonable word uh, when it's seasoned with salt in that metaphor. The Bible also tells us about a hygienic use for salt, at least in the case of newborns. The prophet Ezekiel, he says this, um, well, the, the Lord speaks through Ezekiel to the people of Israel, saying this and mentioning salt. As for your birth, speaking to the people, in the day you were born as a nation, and he uses this image of an abandoned child, your navel or umbilical cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing you were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in cloths. It's the only place in Scripture where salt is, is mentioned in this connection of, of cleansing and preparing a newborn immediately after birth. And it's significant for us to consider as Ezekiel being a prophet and our text this evening being connected in some way to the ministry of the prophets. And both of these uses we see today, or actually all three, we see salt being used as a preservative as seasoning in our food, but also in hygiene. Salt scrubs, bath salts, whatever you want to say about it. But more significantly in the Bible, we have a couple, uh, three other uses or connections for salt that I want you to consider. One is a covenantal use. Salt was usually connected, or frequently connected, I should say, to God's covenants, his relationships with people. Namely, salt, when it was used in the establishment of a covenant, or mentioned in connection to a covenant, showed forth the everlasting, eternal nature of God's relationship to his people. Numbers 18.19 says this, uh, to the priests of the old covenant, God says, all the offerings of the holy gifts which the sons of Israel offer to the Lord, I have given to you and your sons and your daughters with you as a perpetual, that means everlasting, allotment. It is an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord to you and your descendants with you. And then in connection to the kings, having looked at the priests, we see in 2 Chronicles 13.5 that the sons of David is testified by his great-grandson, King Abijah, that they have been brought into a covenant of salt with the Lord. Abijah says to wicked King Jeroboam of the, the breakaway faction in the north, Do you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the rule over Israel forever to David and his sons by what? A covenant of salt. Salt has a covenantal connection in the Bible. 
also has a liturgical use. Salt was very important in the worship of ancient Israel. It was so important that it was involved in every single sacrifice that they ever made. Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13 says, Every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt, so that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. It's always present in the worship of God's people before a holy God. But I think most significantly for us this evening, as we consider salt as a preservative, as we consider the effect of salt on the world tonight and today, is uh, drawn from that passage which I read out of the Old Testament earlier at some length, 2 Kings chapter 2, where we see this prophetic ministry of Elisha, the persecution of Elisha, as the heir of the prophet par excellence, Elijah, and one of the very first miracles that he performs in fact, the first unique miracle he performs involves salt having an effect on the city in which he lives. Very interesting picture for us and a bit of a provocative connection that I'm drawing. But just to remind you of these verses, note, he went out to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, thus says the Lord, I have purified these waters. There shall not be from their death or unfruitfulness any longer. So the waters have been purified to this day, according to the word of Elisha, with he spoke. And then immediately after this miracle, as I've already read, Elisha gets persecuted, mocked and scorned, slandered, threatened by a rather large group of young men who, if their taunt means anything, were threatening his very life. You see the connection to our text tonight. Christ has just told his disciples, you will be persecuted. And then what does he say to them by way of encouragement? You are the salt of the earth. You are to have an effect, at the very least, of preserving all that is good in God's creation. And perhaps even through you, God will advance his kingdom of grace and reintroduce purity and have a purifying effect in the world today. But though salt, particularly in this case from 2 Kings, is the good for the fruitfulness of the earth, it's a good thing, yet the world rejects and scorns it, preferring instead to be barren of life, as these young men rejected and scorned Elisha. And we're reminded once again of what we looked at last week and the week before from 1 John 3.13, do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. And yet Christ says... You are the salt of the earth, as an encouragement. He's already related to the disciples, or he's already related these disciples of his to the prophets of old in verse 12 of Matthew chapter 5. And here he's setting apart the disciples as a new covenant order of scribes with a prophetic ministry dispensing or spreading the precious wisdom of Christ in the world. And they will have a share in the persecution experienced by the prophets of old. However, they shall share in the prophet's heavenly reward. And so piggybacking on that promise of a reward, he then encourages them again, as they yet remain in the world, you are the salt of the earth. If you recall from last week, what was the main point of the sermon? It's worth remembering. If you suffer for Christ, you suffer with him, proving your salvation in him. If you're persecuted for Christ, you're persecuted with him, proving your salvation in him. 
And so we are not to be dismayed when we're facing persecution, but rather we should be uh, galvanized, to use an engineering term, or edified and strengthened and encouraged. The hatred of the world directed against you because of your essential difference from the world, that essential distinction that exists between you and the world, your spiritual saltiness is one proof among many of your spiritual vitality and interest in Christ, who himself was scorned, mocked, and crucified for the sake of the world and the glory of his Father. And such is the influence of Christians today, for the good of the world to the glory of God. So I hope that I've established that Christian influence is indeed for the good of the world, as pictured in our Old Testament lesson this evening and and various other connections drawn from Scripture, preserving something noble and good. That's what Christians do. Bringing forth fruit in God's created order. We'll We'll be told later that the kingdom scribe is one who brings forth treasures old and new out of the treasuries of God. And all of that we bear in mind now as we consider how, how Christian influence is applied in the world. Your saltiness is your difference, which brings good to the world as a Christian, and this is how it's applied. Now we consider what it means to be salt, not just generally, but of the earth. Salt of the earth. It involves two things. First, close contact with the world. Being salt of the earth involves close contact with the world. You're applied in the world. And then secondly, it's contact by word and deed, always together. It's very important. First, close contact with the world. You're being applied into the world. Elisha threw that jar of salt into the pool of water. All of it just dumped right into the pool of water. When we salt a steak before we slap it on the grill, we rub that salt in and sometimes we let it sit for a little while before we put it on the grill. But whatever the case may be, we are being pressed hard into the world. If you doubt me, perhaps you will believe the Lord Jesus when he says in John's Gospel, chapter 17, this. This is what he prays for his disciples. I do not ask you to take them out of the world but to keep them from the evil one, implied in the world. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world, but sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And when Christ says to his disciples in our text this evening, in Matthew chapter 5, you are the salt of the earth, he's commissioning them. Again, returning to my opening illustration, he's laying before them their function in the world. They are supposed to be in there. They're supposed to have a close contact with the world. And every time I drive up or down Interstate 95 on my way to or from Philadelphia, you go through Baltimore, unfortunately, and on the side of the highway, you see these gigantic mounds of minerals. I I think it's salt that the Maryland Highway Department stores there, and then when it snows or gets icy, that's where they go and get it to spread all throughout the state. And then certainly as you go through, um, again, this is such a northern reference, but it's really good. When you go through all these northern interstates on the sides of the roads at different intervals, you'll see little driveways leading up to these big barns, these big storehouses, but they're not full of cows and, and horses and pigs like our much nicer barns down here in the south are. Rather, they're full of salt. 
But if the salt were to stay there in those barns or to remain in those big mounds, they'd be utterly useless to us. The salt's only useful when it's spread forth from the barns onto the roads for the sake of de-icing them and making them safe for travel. That's one illustration of what's going on here. The salt isn't hoarded in monasteries. Christians aren't to lock themselves up in these little reclusive communities hiding from the world. No, we're all tempted to do that, particularly us homeschooling families, aren't we? We want to protect our children, and certainly we should, but that isn't the sum and substance of the Christian life. At some point, the Lord will call us to enter into the world Not to become like it, as we'll get to in a second, but for the good of the world and his purposes. As salt, Christians are sprinkled throughout the world. Even in the letters from Peter and Paul, uh, and particularly Peter, when he's speaking to a persecuted church, he's saying, those of you who have been dispersed abroad, and when you spread salt, you disperse it. When you put it into, uh, into a, um, some, in some recipes, you have to sprinkle it in and make sure it's spread around. It's worked into, to borrow a phrase from Abraham Kuyper, every square inch of society. Christians are to be active in all walks of life, legitimate, lawful life and human endeavor. This is why Jeremiah says in chapter 29 of Jeremiah's prophecy to the exiled church, to the exiled people of God, when he speaks of their influence in Babylon, he says, seek not the destruction of the city, not the neglect of the city, but the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. Now I want to make a point here. I'm speaking of the influence of individual Christians, like individual grains of salt being sprinkled around human society, engaged in every sphere, in state, in marketplace, in the academy, in medicine, whatever. I'm not speaking of the church as a visible institution interposing itself into the affairs of the state or the marketplace. We can speak of those affairs insofar as the word speaks of those affairs. But the church is not an activistic, a politically activistic organization. Particularly important for us men and women. We're facing a hostile culture. We're wondering, what can be done? The church is not to get off mission, off its mission of declaring the gospel. But individual Christians are to be a preservative death-defying influence in every sphere of society. And so go vote as Christians. Go engage and make medical decisions as Christians. Go teach in classrooms as Christians. Go live your life and conduct your commercial affairs as Christians. Even enter into politics and government, commerce and trade, art and culture, manners and entertainment, all as Christians. And know That in so doing, as Christians, you will look different than the world, you'll invite the scorn of the world, but you'll be pursuing the goodwill of your Father revealed to us. You are the salt of the earth. This close contact with the world, it is indeed in every uh, aspect of society, but it's contact not merely by deed, but always and ever and always by word and deed wedded together. What does close contact look like, so to speak? I can give some general principles 
1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter writes to a persecuted people. He says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies, or as the King James puts it, show forth the praises of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. As Christians, we always tie together our good deeds to our testimony. We show forth by good deeds who we are as sons and daughters of God. But we proclaim the excellencies of God while we do it. Remember what happened to terrible King Herod when they said, the crowd said, the voice of a God and not a man. And Herod didn't tell them to shush and stop. He didn't give glory to God. What happened? He literally keels over and dies being eaten from the inside out by worms in that very instant. So too is the case for all those particularly those of the household of faith, those who are identified with God by covenant. When someone praises you and you have an opportunity to give glory to God and you withhold that glory from him and you keep it for yourself. There's a great danger there. But the salty Christian, the one who's in the world and not of it, he doesn't hoard the praise. He always gives it up to God. Praise be to God in heaven. He alone has done it. So we always tie our good deeds to our testimony, our good work of God. Whatever we do in the world, we do it to the glory of God. What does Jesus say in just a couple of verses? We'll look at it more closely in a few weeks, but he says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. Oh, the most important part, and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It's the most important part. There's such an obsession in our evangelical culture with doing good in order to be acceptable, to win an audience, to placate the hostility of the world. No, we do good to glorify our Father in heaven. And I know it's hokey, but I always enjoy seeing athletes after a triumph point up to heaven or say, I just thank God in heaven for, for what's happened today. I mean, it's ultimately insignificant, the whole winning a football game or whatever. Everyone's going to forget about it in just a couple of years. But what is significant about that moment is turning over praise to God for every triumph we experience in this life. And so our testimony then is that God himself has done it. What has he done? This is the message that Christ has brought into the world by his ministry. It's the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. And that's simply put, the world is rotting away like a big hunk of flesh. But God in Christ has come to save, to rub salt into that world and to preserve it for usefulness. God in Christ has resolved and come to snatch us as brands out of a fire where we are caught in our sins and trespasses, where we are caught being condemned in those things, he comes and says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Namely, God has come to save. Boys and girls, as you hear Dr. Piper and Pastor Groff week in and week out and our interns and other guests like Dr. Hamilton and Dr. Master and Mr. Quo and everybody else come and set before you the gospel of Jesus Christ, have you yet accepted that as truth? Is that your confession? Have these words become your words in your world that namely God has come to save sinners and he has come in the person of Christ Jesus 
my Lord and my Savior. May that be your testimony. And may all the good works you do over what I hope are very long lives be always to the praise of his glorious grace in your life. No other motivator will sustain you in a life of worthwhile endeavor in this world or of eternal blessedness in the world to come. The saving message of Christ's gospel of the kingdom of heaven is good news for sinners. It's good news for you and for me. And when earnestly received through faith, the Spirit applies this message, the gospel, to sinners remade into the likeness of the everlasting Christ. This pulpit here, pulpits around the world that preach the gospel, from which the gospel thunders forth, it's just the tip of the spear, my friends. You see, you will be cast out from this place as so much salt into the world to be rubbed into every sphere of society. And as you go out as Christian men and women, as Christian boys and girls into your families, your communities, your workplaces, and in whatever society in which you're engaged, you proclaim his excellencies by word and deed for the good of your neighbors to the glory of God your Father. Thus... My friends, Christian influence applied in the world is indeed Christian influence for the good of the world. And now we'll press on into the bulk of the verse, considering how Christian influence is maintained in the world. Look at Christ's words with me. He says, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And so he puts in front of his disciples a great urgent need to remain salty, to remain distinct from the world, to remain essentially different than the world, even as they're in the world. And then, by implication, he sets before them this promise of overcoming the world, which is always trying to pull them back into its image. First, he says, remain essentially different than the world. The great threat to our witness is, as Christ says here, we lose our saltiness, that the salt becomes tasteless. The essential difference which works a preserving effect upon human society in service to and reliance upon God is irretrievable once it's lost. That's not me saying it. That's Christ saying it. He says, if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? Literally, if salt is no longer salt, how can it be made salt again? What will salt the salt? It's a physical impossibility. He's not giving a chemistry lesson, but he's drawing out this uh, hyperbolic, uh, even, even ridiculous picture to press home his point. One ancient Jewish commentator proposed this illustration dialogue. A man says to somebody, he says, Friend, when salt becomes unsavory or unsalty, wherewith is it salted? What can salt it? And then his conversation partner says, Well, he salts it with the afterbirth of a mule. And then the other guy says, Well, is there an afterbirth of a mule? And the guy says, the other guy says, Well, can salt become unsalty? It's an impossibility. You see, mules can't have babies, which means they can't have afterbirth. There are no baby uh, mules that come from other mules. It's an impossibility. The point here is that the fate of useless salt is not that it has some residual usefulness, 
but that it has no use. And Jesus says, it is no longer good for anything. It's good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Throwing it out into the trash, as it were. Matthew 5, 13. 2 Peter 2, 17 to 22 shows us that this picture of salt becoming unsalty, of that which is supposed to be incorruptible and even supposed to preserve meat and flesh from corruption, has become corrupted itself. This is a picture of judgment. There's no coming back from it. 2 Peter chapter 2. These are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Speaking of apostate teachers, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. That's judgment. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality. Those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of corruption, of rottenness. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse of them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. The point there at the end that Peter's making is simply that Those who seem and appear to be Christians to us and then forsake the Lord and turn back to the corruption of this world while they're revealing their true character, what they always were. But the condition in which they plunge themselves after living the Christian life in some measure for some time, that condition into which they enter is even worse than what they were before they ever professed Christ in the first place. Hebrews 6.4 puts it this way, for in the case of those who have, been once, who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. How can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything. In this we have the judgment. Food can be salted by salt, but what remains to salt the salt once it loses its saltiness? We see this illustrated for us tragically in the fate of so many American and European once Christian denominations which have lost their savor and in their race and rush to win the approval of the world have forsaken the truth of God and have lost their saltiness. And they too are now dying a surprisingly slow death in some cases. But year after year, I'm speaking particularly of the Presbyterian Church USA, the Episcopal Church, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. These denominations and others besides have declining membership, have declining influence in the world, and they do no good. In fact, they speed up the rottenness of our society by their efforts. The world, my friends, it wants us to be like it, Obsessed with certain things about which we should not be concerned. 
obsessed with entertainment, obsessed with political power, obsessed with gratification of felt desires. Instead, we are to have zeal for worship, not entertainment. We are to have a love of justice and not power for the sake of power. We are to possess and and hunger and thirst for righteousness and holiness of life in denial of self and not the satisfaction of every desire that crosses our minds or bubbles up from the black tar of our hearts. In other words, we are to be salt in the world, applied to the world, not to become like it, but to preserve whatever is good that remains in God's creation, even to lend a savor to it. Whereas the world wants us to be sugar, sweet to the taste, but ultimately destructive to the health of the body. The Lord wants us to be salt, that which is useful and good and universally, as Pliny tells us, recognized as as valuable in humanity. We are to remain essentially different than the world, to maintain our influence in the world for Christ. And the promise here then is not that we'll be conformed to the corruption of this age, but rather that we will overcome the world. You see, Christ, in coming and making these disciples his band of followers, what he's doing is he's setting up a new order of scribes, an alternative to the formalist, legalist, uh, full-of-themselves scribes and Pharisees that will oppose him at every step of his earthly ministry. He's setting up an alternative scribal order, a new school of Christian discipleship, a renewed humanity to dwell with God for all eternity. He's setting up in the kingdom of heaven uh, that which is described in the Beatitudes, those who are poor in spirit, hunger and thirst for righteousness, who desire peace among men and peace with God. And the function of this school or this alternative order, it's perpetuated, it's maintained only if that school remains distinct from the world. For example... If we try to be everything, we're going to be nothing at all. But if we as a church seek to be the church as Christ defines the church, if each of us seek to be a Christian as Christ defines what a Christian is, a little Christ, then we will be of some worth even in this present order, in this present age. 1 John 5, 1-5 then gives us the result. It gives us a picture of enduring saltiness, and it's pictured as overcoming the world. Notice what John says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Who are or is the salt of the earth? Those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God and follow him accordingly. This enduring saltiness, it's not overcome by the world, as we saw in the case of the apostate teachers in 2 Peter chapter 2. 
Being salty actually means overcoming the world itself. You see, when you put salt on meat, if you put too much salt on a piece of meat, what happens to the flavor of the meat? I've experienced this at a few different grill outs. The meat's flavor becomes overcome by the salt. See, salt is extremely powerful. Salt is extremely powerful. It overcomes that which it touches. And who we are as salty overcomers is that which we are on the basis of faith in the truth. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith, John tells us. That's what makes us salty. Our faith in the truth, in Christ himself, the truth being from God, Christ being from God, our faith being from God. As we learned in Sunday school this morning, you must be born again. For that gift comes from above. And he is doing it. He is creating us. He's creating you and me as his disciples, all those who are granted faith in him to do this that is described in 1 John chapter 5, that which is defined for us in Matthew chapter 5, that is to overcome the world's putrefaction and decay, the death of the world, to overcome temptation, to overcome the pressure to compromise with the world and to grow rotten along with it, to overcome the desire for comfort at the expense of godliness, to overcome sloth and lethargy and spiritual exertions, namely to overcome sin. To overcome that sin in the power and strength and grace of God. I think most of you know this. I'm not really an inventor. I've never invented anything. But if I were an inventor, you know I'd be the authority on my invention. No one else can tell me what I made it for. I could trump everybody else. I made this because I wanted it to do that. Well, from our text this evening, Christ tells us what his newly formed community of disciples is for, and he is the authority. He alone can define why it is he's doing what he's doing, calling these men out of their boats to put down their fishing nets and to become fishers of men. He alone can give a definition, an authoritative definition, to this new order of scribes that he's making. Indeed, he alone can tell us for what purpose he has called his disciples and for what purpose he calls men and women, boys and girls from every nation and every age to follow him. He is our creator and he is our redeemer. He alone has that authority and right. But he doesn't leave us wondering. He gives us his word. He gives us many pictures of what it is he's doing and what it is he desires for us to do what his purpose is in the world, in and through us. And just as he's described the qualities and characteristics of a renewed, flourishing humanity in the Beatitudes, setting forth the way of wisdom by which we are to flourish in the world as a renewed humanity, here in verse 13, he begins to set forth the mission of the disciples in and for the world. They are the salt of the earth. And they are the light of the world, as we will see in just a few weeks. And as salt, as I've sought to bring out this evening, Christ's followers live as true believers for the good of the world in the midst of the world. But they're utterly different than the world. You're in it, but not of it. They are yet sent into the world for the good of the world, 
but with a divine warning against returning to the rot of the world from which many of us have actually been plucked. And as the salt of the earth, all those who live for Christ, and even those who suffer persecution for Christ, they exist for the glory of God and for the good of his world wherever he sends them. I'll end on this one illustration. John Newton, the great hymn writer, he was a slave trader turned into a gospel minister. He once wrote to William Wilberforce after Wilberforce was converted. Wilberforce being one of the most powerful political figures in England, a formidable force, this Wilberforce. Newton wrote to him that the Lord would use him in his station in life as a Christian for the good not just of the church as a politician, wielding power for the good of his interest group, but for the good of the nation as a whole. And indeed, William Wilberforce was one of the primary drivers of the abolition of slavery in the, in the uh, British Empire of his day. And we thank the Lord for him. And so too, each of you, whether small or great, are called to be salt in the world, holding at bay the forces of death and putrefaction and bringing a savor of life and a fragrance of holiness and godliness into our societies. Let's stand for prayer. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.